So we have lots and lots of questions. Cool. First question really relates to how do you start, start the conversation with your patient that you want to stop the opioids or reduce the opioids? What do you begin, how do you begin the conversation? Well, I think at least in, in our practice, the way that we do it is basically through education. We tell the patients what are the problems and what were the misconceptions that took us to having them on opioids. We were uh, in, in some way, again, the leap of faith was what took us there. We started giving patients opioids, selling them as the panacea drug, which they weren't. And now we are faced with this enormous societal problem. So just teaching them about what are the harms to them long term. Talk to them about osteoporosis, immune suppression, uh, sexual dysfunction, opioid-induced hyperalgesia. And when you start kind of giving them a little bit of information, and don't scare them in that I'm not going to give you any more. The moment that you say that, you're going to start off a war. Don't just say we're going to stop it. Go slow. If you've had them on medication for a long time, it is unrealistic that next week they're going to be on none. That cannot happen. And we, we have to kind of also, um, just a thought that came to mind, be very careful with now that there is so much more paperwork that goes into prescribing, that our lack of um, desire to do all the querying and the urine drug testing and the opioid agreements, um, that we end up deciding to um, taper off or simply stop writing medications. Patients will go into withdrawal, and that can be seen as patient uh, treatment abandonment. How do you actually stop the drug, or how do you taper? Is there a cookbook approach? Or? About 10% per week can be um, somewhat uh, uh, appropriate. Again, it all depends on the dose and the amount of time that they've been on the medication. If they've been on the medicine for a long time, it's fairly unrealistic to think that you're gonna do 10% weekly. You could potentially do it monthly or quarterly. Again, very, very slowly. What you wanna do is gain the confidence of your patient that you're actually doing it for their um, betterment for their safety and not for um, um, because you're being told by government or you know um, administration that you must do these things the moment that they actually understand and that you take the time to explain to them the reason why you're doing it they kind of do buy into it um, along those lines are there uh, is one drug more addictive than another drug of the opioids um, they're all pretty addictive. <laughs> They're all um, fairly liked, um, and they can do bad things with them. The IR formulations, again, kind of tend to be much more rewarding, and that's why you'll find that uh, patients who have uh, addiction uh, will go ahead and crush the long-acting formulation so that they can turn it into an IR preparation. Um, but yeah, they're all pretty addictive. Have you seen more overdoses with one particular drug versus another? Well, fentanyl is kind of the one that's pretty much on the table right now. And again, that's there's just, again, so much uh, being spiked uh, with fentanyl. And again, that's one of my concerns with um, cannabis-based uh, medications. Again, if, if you have no oversight um, and patients are simply just uh, being able to um, access 
these drugs and there's no oversight, they can be spiked with other drugs. So again, the majority of the overdose deaths now are not from hydrocodone or morphine, they're more on the fentanyl side of things. Um, when your patients uh, get angry at you and um, threaten, do you, have you had that experience? Oh, <laughs> yeah, a lot. And what do you um, do? Well, number one, I think um, setting boundaries and having clear, uh, um, so clarity in what is my role and what I'm going to accept or not accept. I am there to serve my patient. I am there to care for my patient, but I will tolerate no abuse. So um, the first thing is, this is my plan. This is how I am going to do it. Um, I would like to get your buy-in into this because of, and again, these conversations are pretty lengthy, and, and that's probably where some maybe don't have the time to sit there for 30 minutes to um, educate their patient and um, sometimes fight with them. But again, the moment that they know that you're doing it out of safety for them and because you care for them, the attitude tends to change. Again, it's not about being belligerent or fighting back with them, but having clear um, expectations of, I am not going to accept your threat. I am not going to accept a ruckus. This is a conversation between two adults, kind of like a parent and a child. You don't, you kind of negotiate to like stop the tantrum. Um, and that's a lot of what I tend to do in particular with patients. There are a lot of questions related to non-narcotic analgesics and what you use and what the evidence is that they're actually effective. So why don't we start with which ones do you use for chronic pain and uh, their efficacy guidelines and so forth? Okay, it all depends on the mechanism that is uh, affected. For example, if you use an NSAID in neuropathic pain, you're probably not gonna have a great response to it because the mechanism is not inflammatory. Um, so for that, you tend to use more the anti-epileptic drugs or the um, antidepressant drugs. So again, if we are unable to clearly understand the mechanism for the production of the symptom, it is very difficult to then treat it appropriately. And I think that that's where the problem lays, is in the misdiagnosis and the lack of actual understanding of what is uh, actually causing the symptom. So if you use an anti-inflammatory for uh, a tooth extraction, that's gonna work really well because it is inflammatory pain, period. If you have a cut and you use an anti-inflammatory, you're gonna do great with that because again, it is inflammatory pain. If you use opioids and you've got nociceptive pain, right? So you had a cut, you've had a surgery, absolutely, will they work? Yes, they will. Now, the problem is, again, between acute and chronic, is the condition inflammatory? An NSAID may be a good thing, but if it's not inflammatory, then they won't work. So again, identifying the condition is probably the paramount um, um, fact uh, that sometimes precludes us from treating them appropriately. Uh, one of the things I've noticed is that people tend to throw the kitchen sink on it when they're using the non-narcotics. So is there evidence that the use of a non-steroidal is additive to the use of 
gabapentin, Lyrica, to the use of lidocaine? Is there any evidence that we should spend that kind of money? Uh, again, polypharmacy tends to work better in chronic pain than monotherapy. Um, it is uh, extraordinarily rare to find a patient with chronic pain in whom you give one medication and they're done with that. Um, yes, there is a lot of um, expense that comes along with trying to not use the opioid. Um, I think it's worth it. I actually do think it's worth it. It's money against death. So I'm, I'm pretty okay with trying. We try to use the minimum dose necessary, and we try to utilize also combination with non-pharmacological regimens, so using more physical modalities and psychological modalities, adding on so that we can reduce the pharmacological load. Along those lines, um, do we have evidence that physical medicine, chiropractors, hypnosis, acupuncture, what role do they play? They absolutely play a role. They work as well as opioids. Basically, then, then we have our meta-analysis right there that I presented to you. They all can work. They're, they're, the pain reduction tends to be about the same. When you add them together, the response tends to be better. Let's go back to marijuana. There's people um, who swear by the CBD oil or the hemp extract. Um, you said that there's very few studies, that they're small, that they're not really you know, broad enough to conclude anything. What do you do with someone who swears that it works? Well, I, I, I don't know that I would argue with them. I don't know that I would argue with them. If it, if it works and there's no data to say this is a terrible thing that you're doing to yourself, um, I, I guess I don't have a problem. The problem that I have uh, particularly is the fact that there is no regulatory oversight in all of these products, these CBD. We don't know, um, you know, what is the relationship to THC. We, we don't know. So unless they're done through um, medical marijuana practices where there is governmental oversight um, that you know what the patient is actually getting, uh, again, safety is the concern. But again, many of these creams, yes, I have patients who will tell me, I mean, I swear by it that this is the only thing that works for me, and it's the cream. I'm not smoking it. I'm not eating it. I'm not anything. I just wear a cream, and then that makes me feel better. Well, okay. I just maybe won't give you the opioid then. I won't do another controlled substance. Um, I'll just do one. Um, could you speak again or give some uh, guidance on the use of Belbuca and how we do that? So um, I don't do a lot of buprenorphine, more so that transdermal for uh, chronic pain. Um, I don't do a lot of opioid use disorder. I'm not ex-wavered, so I don't have expertise in how to use it. And I would um, potentially recommend that we all begin to become a little bit more familiar with it because, again, addiction is a real problem that we're facing. Opioid use disorder is very, very common, and it can be iatrogenic. I do need to stress that fact because that has been many times been brought to my attention. It's like, yeah, they're not doing heroin. No, they're doing morphine that you're giving them. And yes, iatrogenically, they could have become uh, dependent and have a disorder of use now. So um, again, Belbuca is the buccal film 
Uh, it can be used once daily or twice daily. The transdermal patch is changed every seven days. Minimum doses for the uh, transdermal patches start at five micrograms per hour, and again, they're changed every seven days. The maximum dose for them for the patches are 20 micrograms per hour, I believe, for Bilbuca. I think it's maybe like 900 micrograms uh, per day. But again, I, I'm not familiar. I don't use it uh, for, for chronic pain management. So there are a lot of regulations, specifically in Florida and probably in many other states, um, regulating how we prescribe restrictions. Uh, the first question really relates, have we gone 360? Are people with pain now not getting treated? Um, well. I think maybe a little bit, but I think that we're the ones who are taking it to the other side of the pendulum. I don't think it's the regulation that's doing it. I think that we've just gone all the way out. Um, in my practice, before the law became that you had to query the PDMP, I did it on every single patient because it's for their safety and for mine. Because if they overdose on my prescription, it is my license too. So it is for our own sake that we should also query we can identify if patients are receiving uh, medications that we are unaware of, and we may be harming them. So I don't think that that's a bad thing. You're in drug screens. If I'm prescribing a controlled substance, I'm going to have control over what they're doing. And if I find that they're not being um, uh, consistent with my recommendations, I will take off, take away their medication, period. There are certain rules. so. From my standpoint, I find the regulations actually refreshing that we're actually really doing things as they should be done. It's just, it is time consuming, absolutely. And we are in a historical moment in which um, we are being made to see more and more patients in shorter and shorter, shorter periods, and yet we have much more paperwork. So we are the ones that are deciding not to write anymore. Because again, not using opioids ever is almost as dumb as always using them. Is there any evidence that it actually is reducing the overdose rate or even the chronic use of opioids? Again, what we do find is, yes, if you look at the PDMP data, it, there has been a reduction in morbidity and mortality from uh, opioid use. However, there is the overdose rates are going up, and it is because of synthetic um, opioids, so not prescription drugs. The overdose from prescription dose, uh, prescription drugs has lowered. For the first time in a decade, we've seen a decrease in these overdose uh, rates. However, the overdoses from fentanyl have gone up. Can you talk a little bit about some of the interventional pain modalities and when to use them, when to refer? Um, so injections can indeed help in some patients. Um, we have an enormous variety of uh, interventions that we can do, and that goes from, again, nerve blocks to intraarticular injections to epidural injections to intrathecal drug delivery systems, so implantable devices, spinal cord stimulator, um, stimulators, peripheral nerve stimulators. So there's an enormous variety of interventions that can be offered to patients, again, as a means to try to reduce the pharmacological load on patients. Do they always work? Absolutely not. Are all patients candidate for injections? Absolutely not. And so, for example, for patients that are anticoagulated, 
and who have sciatica and you cannot take their anticoagulation away and you can't give them an NSAID because you don't want to interfere with their coagulation anymore and they have liver disease and you don't want to give them Tylenol, oh boy, okay, so maybe that's a good patient that you would consider a, a low-dose opioid in. So let me pick some specific pains. Trigeminal neuralgia. What, what's new? What do we have? Okay, so um, sodium channel blockers um, are probably the first-line drugs. Uh, so uh, carbamazepine, number one, and uh, gabapentinoids also have pretty good data on them. Um, carbamazepine does require a little bit more monitoring. They do have the capacity of causing hyponatremia that can be subclinical, uh, while gabapentinoids do not require any sort of monitoring. Uh, there is a, an analog of carbamazepine, so a newer drug, which is oxcarbazepine, also a sodium channel blocker, uh, that um, indeed does have some data um, regarding it. Chronic low back pain. Kill me. <laughs> okay, so chronic low back pain is multifactorial. In general, I would say that what makes it more problematic than anything else is that we are so seduced with imaging. We are so overwhelmingly in love with having an MRI tell us what it is that the patient has. And I want to um, just um, affirm the fact that there's enormous amounts of painless abnormalities. You'll have people coming in with syringomyelia where they have literally no spinal cord. I mean, it is just an enormous hole inside of the cord with, and they have literally maybe just neuropathic pain. They have no motor dysfunction, no other sensory abnormality. Um, so again, how do you correlate that? We were taught in medical school we needed a spinal cord to walk, and yet maybe some don't, right? And, and, and yet they walk, or low back pain. You have terrible uh, facet joint pathology, and yet they don't have pain. And maybe they have a completely normal MRI, and they have terrible pain. So again, a lot of times what we're looking to is for the spine in itself to be the cause. And we forget like all the other musculoskeletal tissues around, right? So muscles can hurt and they can be terribly painful. Um, so not everything necessarily correlates, again, with the imaging. Maybe you have um, electromyographic findings that are also not consistent with the presentation of the clinical pathology. So again, it is multifactorial. It is very difficult to diagnose. Uh, it should be treated with a multimodal approach, um, polypharmacy, and again, physical modalities. Exercise is probably the most important thing that we should uh, recommend for our patients. The more sedentary they become, the worse back pain tends to get. So activity is probably the most important recommendation that we make for patients. Peripheral neuropathy. Again, what we have is data, some data on uh, anti-epileptic drugs and um, uh, antidepressant drugs, topical um, local anesthetic, so topical capsaicin uh, for postherpetic neuralgia. Uh, we can use, for example, capsaicin has pretty good data. Um, again, lidocaine, anti-inflammatories, transdermal can also work. Um, bone pain, bone meds. Okay, so bone meds. So th that is super, super severe pain. And so you have for that, uh, obviously, anti-inflammatories, acetaminophen, opioids, biphosphonates, calcitonin. For uh, bony meds, uh, there is the potential for using um, Zomera 
also uh, zoledronic acid. Um, steroids can be very effective. Uh, chronic regional pain syndromes, chronic fibromyalgia. Okay, so um, chronic regional pain syndrome is a really bizarre disease, and it's really not that common. I think it has become a little bit of a waste paper diagnosis where whenever we don't know what the patient has automatically, we give them some sort of title, just like we do with fibromyalgia. Um, where, again, with fibromyalgia, it is a nociplastic condition. We don't know. There is no tissue injury. There is no neuronal injury, and yet patients have tremendous pain. We don't know why. We, they do have pain. And so, again, all we can do is go on the, um, uh, the path of greater safety to patients. For CRPS, I think that the most important uh, takeaway point is that rehabilitation is probably the goal of therapy, is to get them to move. The less they move their limb, the more they're going to atrophy and they're going to lose function. So again, more than reducing pain for um, any other reason, it is so that they can regain function through rehabilitation services. Blocks for it are not the mainstay of treatment. They can be utilized or added on to pharmacological modalities uh, when it is not enough to get them over the hump so that they can, again, rehabilitate. We have some specific questions on medications for fibromyalgia, the use of naltrexone and metformin. Mm -hmm. So metformin, I don't have a lot of information on, so I'm not going to kind of um, give you much answers on that. On naltrexone, it, it is believed that it works on uh, glial cells, um, and by doing so, there is uh, less production of um, pro-inflammatory substances uh, within the nervous tissue, again, kind of reducing pain. So there are some studies on uh, naltrexone. For some patients, it can be beneficial. Could you comment on ketamine's use? It's come I'm, on the market. Now. I'm a total non-advocate for the use of ketamine. There is really no consistent data. There's fantastic data for acute pain and for anesthesia. There is simply no consistent solid data for its use in chronic pain. There's very conflicting evidence, and whatever evidence there is is, again, on small sample sizes. And so, again, it is a derivative of... Uh, phenylcyclidine, so a very, very highly addictive drug. And so, again, kind of my point with uh, substituting one medication for another, before we make that leap of going ahead and using another addictive substance, we should have better data uh, in order to proceed to its use. So, again, for acute pain and um, um, reversal of opioid tolerance, there is very good, consistent, solid data. And for that purpose, they can and should be used. Turmeric. Um, Anti-inflammatory properties. So for those patients who decide, oh, I don't want to be taking anything. I hate drugs and I hate pharmacology and everything. I always talk to them about uh, the um, uh, gut brain axis, how we can now maybe through nutrition be able to reduce the inflammatory response, and turmeric is known to be a good anti-inflammatory. Are there apps? I mean, we have apps for meditation. Apps for we have every... <laughs> apps for um, stress reduction. Are there apps for pain reduction? Um, I don't really know that there are any. There may be, and I'm sorry if I can't give you any 
great answer on that one. I, I don't use them, so I don't really know. Um, uh, but I would guess that there is some sort of meditation app uh, or something that might help with chronic pain. I don't think that there is. Do you use biofeedback or yes. yoga? Yes, yes, absolutely. So all the uh, complementary therapies uh, should be used. Again, they're low uh, potential for harm to our patients, and they can provide benefit. So absolutely, they can and should be used. The only problem that you have is many of them are out-of-pocket expenses, and they may be then reduced to the number of patients who have um, availability to access. So along those lines, um, for the average practitioner dealing with chronic pain syndromes, are we better off sending them to a comprehensive pain center where multimodalities can be used? And um, I think that in, in the ideal uh, utopia, uh, sure, but it's it's impossible. There's too many of you and too little of us. So there's literally no way that you're going to have comprehensive centers and in which only pain specialists are going to be managing pain patients. There's literally no way that that's going to happen. And you guys are now, again, kind of like the forefront, um, kind of like the WHO ladder, right? The World Health Organization ladder. 90% of cancer patients can be treated with as simple as um, and then said a mild opioid and an opioid, and again, you don't need anything else. Majority of patients can be treated if they're diagnosed correctly, if the mechanism that is being treated is uh, um, um, understood, hence using the correct type of medication. We do know that, again, uh, chronic pain is just a, dif a different beast. There's a lot of um, emotion that goes in there. There's a lot of comorbidities that go in there. And again, we're always trying to reduce a number, a number that is none other than a self-reported subjective measure, right? There is no way for us to prove or disprove any symptom that anybody gives us. So again, rather than reducing the number, focus on can I get them to be more active? Can I get them to return to work? Can I get them to be more um, functional in society. That should be kind of what um, uh, guides our practice more so than they've got pain eight out of 10 and I wanna take it down to five out of 10. Forget the number. If you look at the majority of your patient's charts, you'll go back years on end and you'll always see that they always complained of eight out of 10 pain, always. And they're on high dose opioid. Then why do you have them on high dose opioid if they've got eight out of 10 pain? It doesn't work, right? So again, don't focus on a number, focus on function and goal-oriented therapy. Along those lines in looking at safety and do you avoid um, or what do you do with the patient who's on the Valium and is there any risk greater in those groups of OD? They, the, again, the, again, kind of uh, you get to choose. In life, we get to choose. If you want to keep the benzodiazepine, probably the opioid should go away. If you want to keep the opioid, then probably the benzodiazepine should go away. Um, we're using too much drug. We're, we're, we tend to tell our patients that there's, there's an app for that and there's a drug for that too. Sometimes there are no drugs. And sometimes what we have to focus in is on non-pharmacological therapies. We're trying to treat depression with opioids. We're trying to treat sleep disorders with opioids. Um, again, we, sh we shouldn't. We shouldn't, and we should know that the combination of opioid and benzodiazepines do increase the potential for overdose and death. 
How do you get rid of the uh, extra pills? Do you um, accept them? Do you tell your patients to take them back to the pharmacy? What do you do? No, so um, you can have, uh, there's um, like fireplace, um, um, like fire stations, thank you. Fire stations have um, um, like boxes in which those can be deposited and then they're destroyed. There's a, a number of uh, individual cases uh, that um, they're asking your management on. And I'm going to just start reading them since we have some time left here. Is, um, what are the uh, narcotics uh, most or least affected uh, associated with the serotonin toxicity effect? Okay, so tramadol is the one that we're really concerned with because it, it's, it's kind of like an atypical opioid. It does have um, new agonist properties, uh, kind of like morphine, much uh, um, uh, less, uh, um, less potent, much less potent than, than morphine, but it also does inhibit the recapture of serotonin and norepinephrine, and again, Chronic pain patients tend to be on a myriad of other drugs and in, uh, routinely are going to have one, two, three antidepressant uh, medications. So that should probably spark a little bit of concern. So if you have a patient on, again, three antidepressants, probably don't go to um, tramadol. That should probably spark a little bit of concern there. How, how do you uh, avoid the severe itching that occurs um, to usual narcotics? So itching tends to be uh, fairly common with like epidural and intrathecal delivery, uh, not so much with uh, oral formulations, but with itching you can use antihistamine um, uh, medications, topical medications to try to alleviate those. How do you treat the constipation? Do you have a regimen? Um, no, not really. So you start adding on uh, stool softeners, laxatives, uh, osmotic um, uh, agents to try to um, um, address regular uh, common constipation. However, opioid-induced constipation can sometimes be extraordinarily difficult to treat. Hence, you have uh, more um, um, uh, uh, like targeted uh, drugs um, that you can utilize uh, for that particular condition. You can, uh, there's um, IV forms, there's oral forms, um, again, that can be used. What's your opinion of TENS units? Um, again, they don't, they don't hurt anybody. There's not a whole enormous, gigantic amount of data, and so you may, again, find a lot of difficulty in um, uh, having uh, insurance companies pay for them. They're, they're available over the counter. Some people swear by them just like by CBD, right? Except TENS unit is really not gonna harm them. So if they have a trial and they like it, I'll try as hard as I can to provide as much documentation to the insurance company to see if I can get it for them. Um, otherwise, again, thank God for technology through um, uh, different websites. Uh, you can find them without the need for a prescription and for fairly low cost. When do you send, or um, I think it's where do you send your point of care cup for confirmation testing since pa patients swear they are not using um, the drug? Um, so the uh, confirmation tests are 
pretty, pretty important. I, I work solely at the VA, so I can't tell you much more like out in uh, the civilian world. Um, at the VA, we send all our confirmations uh, through Quest. Um, and, and again, basically what we wanna do is just, that's kind of like the, you can always, if you have a qualitative uh, test tell you that there is the presence or absence of a drug that you should then obtain a quantitative measure so that you can guarantee if the drug is not there, they're not taking it, period. There's no other um, um, conversation to be had. And what do you do with that information? You can basically confront the patient nicely uh, and let them know, hey, this is happening. And you can maybe give a one-time warning. Hey, if this happens again, we will discontinue. So let the patients know that you have a way to track what they're doing or what they're not doing and that there will be consequences if there is um, no reliability in that they're doing what you are prescribing for them. Have you used or do you use neurolysis? When do you use it? Cancer patients. Um, many, uh, many physicians uh, across the world may use it for um, um, non-cancer related pain conditions. I tend to think that um, um, even though the, the risks of neurolysis uh, may be uh, small, there are risks to it. So I prefer to not use uh, anything that destroys tissue in the body if, if it's not cancer related. Uh, but uh, indeed for cancer, we use them on, on a very regular basis as adjuvants to opioid therapy to either reduce the dose because of potential side effects or because of lack of efficacy. What do you do for phantom pain or surgical incision pain? Okay, so you can do preemptive treatments and there's, a, there's some information out there about the, the use of uh, peripheral nerve blocks or epidural blocks prior to surgery and the utilization of certain types of medications prior to incision that may reduce the chronification of pain. Uh, or the intensity of post-operative pain, which is also very much associated with chronic pain. Um, so for phantom limb pain, again, antineuralgics, but there is a lot of um, uh, information on mirror box therapy, and that's actually really interesting. It's done uh, through psychology or through physical therapy in which a patient who is missing a limb can actually put the limb that exists within a box with mirrors and basically tricks the eye, tricks the brain and actually makes them see the mirror image of the missing limb. And by repeated exposure, pain can be reduced. So along those lines, cognitive behavioral therapy and the role in pain? Fantastic uh, data. It can work, again, um, very, very well. And there's very low potential for any harm to patients. So absolutely, acceptance commitment therapy, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy are uh, indeed therapies that can be uh, added on to regular chronic pain patient treatment. There are a thousand more questions and I'm sure you're going to um, thank Dr. Benedetti for really an expert panel of uh, responses and for a great talk. Thank you very much. Thank we'll you. see you all tomorrow.